from phx.fm. This is Conversation with the Rabbi, featuring open, honest dialogue and sometimes unconventional perspectives on the world we all share. Welcome to another Conversation with the Rabbi. I'm Adrian McIntyre. Our guest for today's show is Rabbi Yisachar Katz. He is chair of the Talmud Department at Yeshivat Choveve Torah Rabbinical School in New York and also the past senior rabbi of the Prospect Heights Shul in Brooklyn. I'm looking forward to this conversation between two rabbis, both scholars and community leaders, who have very complicated relationships to their origins and the path that's led them to their present place in life. Our host is Rabbi Michael Bayo, CEO of the East Valley JCC. Good morning, Rabbi Bayo. Good morning, Adrian. Thank you for being here with me again today. And good morning to Rabbi Katz. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here. Uh, we have spoken a number of times, uh, but this is the first time that we're going to have this opportunity to be together on our podcast. And so I wanted to really thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. One of the things we always like to do at the beginning of these conversations is invite our guests to share a little bit about their story, their journey, kind of situate where you are today in the trajectory of your past. And Rabbi Katz, I think you have uh, something very unique you want to talk about, which is your relationship to orthodoxy and kind of how that brought you to the present day. Give us that thumbnail sketch. Tell us a little bit about your background and your journey. Sure. My pleasure, Adrian. Um, to make a long story, a 53-year-old story short, um, I grew up in the ultra-orthodox community, the Haredi community, as it's traditionally called. Um, for those who are familiar with the intricacies of the Haredi community, I grew up in Williamsburg in the Satmar community, uh, which is considered pretty hardcore ultra-Orthodox. And um, long story short, and I'll fill in a few details in a second, um, I no longer identify as ultra-Orthodox. I no longer identify as um, Haredi. I would guess if I had to pick a a, uh, description, I go between modern Orthodox and modern Hasidic. That would be my kind of uh, description in terms of a f- denominational affiliation today. Um, long story short, uh, like I said, I grew up in the Haredi community. Um, I had a phenomenal experience growing up there. Um, oftentimes you'll hear people who left who um, would describe um, very unpleasant experiences in a ultra-Orthodox context. That was not the case. My case, I grew up in a very, very, very warm home, um, loving parents, um, loving home. Um, my schooling experience was really, really uh, phenomenal. I enjoyed the learning. I enjoyed what they offered me. Um, and in fact, I stayed in the community at a very late age. Um, I would say that I left. I mean, it's hard to pinpoint when I left because left is such a loaded word. I mean, is left uh, does left mean when you started questioning or does left mean when you had the guts to finally leave? But I left late in life. I had three, I was married and had three children in the, in the community. But at some point, somehow for reasons which uh, I'd be happy to get into uh, perhaps later in the show, um, it stopped working for me. Uh, I no longer felt um, that I affiliate, that I associate uh, with the community predominantly um, theologically. And um, that's when I left. And um, like I said in the beginning, and today I identify as 
it's hard. It's hard. Identifications are hard and they peg you in and they put you into a box and I don't like to be in a box. Uh, but I think, like I said, I go something between a modern Orthodox and modern Hasidic. Pr quite honestly, my, real, my soul is modern Hasidic, that's for sure. Rabbi Katz, thank you very much for your introduction. And the more I listen to you, the more I realize um, you know, uh, that we share a lot in common. Uh, both of us uh, grew up, uh, you grew up in Satmar, I grew up in Italy, uh, but uh, we both grew up and went to Hasidish slash Haredi schooling. And at a certain point in our lives, for both of us, as you just mentioned, also for me, I did not leave the, the Haredi community because of bad experiences there. Um, the opposite. I do not identify myself anymore with the Haredi community um, for theological reasons. And, and maybe we can go into the reason that you left and, and the reason that I left, and we can have a conversation about that. But before we do that, I would like to state that ever since I left my community, I was never able to find another community where I feel 100% at home. When I, in the modern Orthodox world, I, I'm not modern Orthodox. Yes, sometimes for ease of conversation, I say that I am a modern Orthodox rabbi, but in reality, I am not. And, uh, um, and, and definitions, as you say, are so difficult. And I, and, and I have always, uh, when I think back of my community, I always, the the regret is that I have never found another community where I fully belong. Do you feel the same way? Or have you found a community where you feel that you belong, just you belong in Satmar? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it's extremely difficult. I think that the the negative is much more easier than the positive in my case. And from what I hear from you, the same as in your case, in the sense that I am very comfortable telling you what I'm not, uh, but what I am uh, is very hard and very difficult. And uh, in fact, um, <laughs> it's kind of funny because I'm considered a success story. What do I mean by a success story? Um, as you know very well, Rabbi Bayo, um, there's a lot of people who kind of drop out of the ultra-Orthodox community, of the Haredi community. They leave... Um, and 99% um, uh, or, I don't know, 95%, we can quibble about the numbers, that leave, leave Judaism altogether. They stop being orthodox. They stop being observant. Um, they drop everything. So in that sense, I'm considered a success story. I mean, you don't see me doing the quotation marks in the sense only that, you know, I left, but I'm still fully observant. I keep everything and I have not abandoned any of my uh, religious commitments uh, whatsoever. In that sense, kind of I'm a success story, meaning that oftentimes I'll get, you know, phone calls from people and people will ask me for guidance. You know, should I leave? Should I not leave? What happens if I leave? What happens if I stay? And one of the first things I tell them is exactly what you said. You, if you're going to leave, you should know that you will be always spiritually homeless. You'll be a spiritually homeless person uh, because no home is going to be the perfect home for you. And um, I'll take what you said a step further along the lines of what you step. 
there are things that I miss terribly from my uh, native community. I miss it terribly. I completely agree. And there are things that will never be replaced because there are things that they do very well that I still have nothing against them and uh, nothing that I dislike about them. That's one end. And the psychological piece is, um, as my wife likes to joke, um, don't make any references uh, to TV before 2000 because Yususkar only started watching TV in 2000, <laughs> right? And these are small things, but every now and then I'll sit at a table and someone will make a joke from, you know, daddy knows best and I'll not get it. So it's not a big deal in the scheme of things, but it is the little reminder. Of, well, I am not one of them. Right. Everyone on earth was watching The Wonder Years. Exactly. And you have no idea what I'm talking <laughs> exactly, about. Exactly. Exactly. Quite right. frankly, I don't even know what you're talking about. You exactly. Know? You barely caught the end of Seinfeld. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, thank God for reruns. You can watch all the Friends <laughs> on HBO. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I I always say that I am uh, I left home, and that's the home that I cannot go back to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's still home. Mm-hmm. Yep. When I think of home, that is home. Sure. And uh, when if people have time to listen to my new self-definition, then I say, I am a Sephardi Jew that tries to keep Torah Mitzvot, and I fail every day miserably. <laughs> I totally know what you mean um, in every level. Um, but that's a long definition that I can't use on my CV. <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> it, it would need a, its own podcast just to explain those four words. Right, um, right, right. Um, but, yeah, you, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, and perhaps we'll get into it because I know you and I have had a lot of, um, not several conversations, but my own um, somewhat. Um, out-of-the-box views, and I know I'm being generous to myself. Uh, I suspect that when I'm not around Rabbi Bay, I would describe them as radical views, uh, which <laughs> might be the correct uh, and uh, more, more, more appropriate. But, you know, I have taken stands on certain issues that are not mainstream. Um, and um, I never know whether, you know, I got it right or not. I tell my students all the time that when I get up there, when I get to heaven, I know exactly what's going to happen. I think God is going to go to his laptop, you know, and bring up his suspect's <laughs> file, and God is going to look at the file and mm-hmm. say, "No, Yisachar, I'm really sorry, but just the uh, averot list, the sin list, is far longer than the mitzvot list. List, I have no choice. I got to send you to to hell." Yeah. And I tell my students always that what I'll do is I'll tell God. Fair enough, if that's what your um, algorithm concludes, then I'm not going to fight it. But I do know that on my way out, God will call me back and give me a kiss in my forehead and say, but you know, Yisaskar, I know you try damn hard. And I'll say that's all I wanted to hear. Uh, because yes. that's the best we can hope for. You know, I, I, I agree with you very much. And that's why maybe I connect with you on multiple levels, even though our friendship or our uh, our acquaintances does not run many many years um and i what you know you mentioned something now that i would like to take this opportunity to speak with you about this because you are probably one of the few people that i feel comfortable speaking about this talk to me about um your stand your public stand 
very, I would say, controversial from from where we both come about the LGBT community. Sure, absolutely. Um, so, so let me give you the 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 kind of um, therapist assessment, and then I'll get to the specifics. Um, I have a deep, 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 deep sense of affinity with the LGBTQ community. And the reason for that is because, you know, I know we cannot compare circumstances and every two, no two circumstances are alike. And God forbid that I'll compare my own experience with, you know, the experience of people who, um, who go through what a typical LGBT person, person goes through. But in a small way, in a very teeny way, I had a couple of years when I lived in the closet in the sense that I was no longer what people thought I was, but I was terrified of letting people know who I really am. And the notion that I am someone who I thought I'm a fine person. I didn't think that what I'm doing is wrong. This is who I am can be so damaging and so consequential and so terrifying. Um, really taught me a lesson of what it means like to be in a closet. And um, in, again, I'm not comparing the, the experiences, chaz v'shalom, God forbid that I should compare. It's nowhere near to just be not orthodox, but non-orthodox than to be something that the community abhors and, and despises. But in a small way, I had that. In fact, oftentimes, and there will be conversations about LGBTQ and people living in the closet, and someone will say, you know, you gotta be careful. It can sometimes lead to suicide. And the response is, wait, you're exaggerating. Don't get carried away. And my response is, you know what? It's not an exaggeration at all. When you walk around in this world day in, day out, knowing I am terrified for being found out for who I am and who knows what that will do to me, it is incredibly, incredibly devastating. Um, so that's the psychological piece. The psychological piece is that um, um, I deeply relate to the LGBTQ community. Philosophically, um, you know, and I think we kind of started out that conversation um, in the past, uh, Rabbi Bayo. Um, the God's, God's Torah is vast. And I think I can make sense of almost all of it. To a degree or the other. I mean, is the prohibition against mixing meat, meat and milk uh, as 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 dangerous as let's say um, incest and murder, no. But I can make sense of it. I can I can live with that. The prohibition against homosexuality, Rabbi Bayo, for me, makes zero sense. I've tried again and again and again to just logically understand what does God have against two men or two women do what otherwise a man and a woman do. And I know there are explanations out there. I know there is that, oh, they don't pro procreate. Well, elderly couples don't procreate either. Uh, you know, people have tried. So I don't know if you want to. Right. I, I completely agree with what you're saying. So I, my disagreement or my lack of understanding is not on anything that you have said so far. My question is, uh, how would you explain uh, the specific terminology used in the Torah? Right, exactly. So, so, so here is where we come to um, my philosophy of halacha. And in fact, I hope my friend doesn't mind I invoke his name. Um, 
Rabbi Steve Greenberg, who I think both of us know, who was a very, very, very uh, public um, advocate for the LGBTQ community. And we're good friends. And in fact, you'll find out in a couple of days, we're going to do actually a, a series of lectures on the topic. Here's where we disagree. Steve Greenberg is willing to attempt to argue that we misconstrue the biblical verse, that when people think that the biblical verse is a prohibition against homosexuality, he has made an argument and he wrote a book about it in which he argues that's not what the Bible really means, right? Long story short, he argues that the Bible prohibits um, um, homosexual rape, not homosexuality, and not homosexual sex. That's his argument. Here's where I differ. I'm an Orthodox Jew. And a proud Orthodox Jew, I like Orthodoxy, I like Orthodox Halakha, I like Orthodox observance. So reinterpreting the Bible is my red line. I'll never go against what has been the traditional interpretation of the Bible. So much so that it could even be that Stephen is theoretically right that People have misinterpreted the verse, but, you know, that's my tradition. My tradition has interpreted the verse as thus, and I'm stuck with. However, however, because the prohibition is so bothersome to me, theologically, psychologically, and emotionally, I will do my utmost to really keep the prohibition to the bare bare minimum, pun unintended, to the bare minimum. In other words, I mean, and we can get into the nitty gritty offline. I don't think that the audience is interested in the nitty gritty. Um, at the end of the day, and I've written about this, I've written a response about this. I think I can show, I can prove that the biblical prohibition is limited to that which the text explicates. And that's my attitude. So when a homosexual person comes to me and says, Rabbi, I am homosexual. I mean, that, that's, that's not negotiable. Um, I still want to be orthodox. What will you say to me? I would say to them, listen, there is something, and I don't want to get into the graphic details. There is something that a Bible is opposed to. Refrain from that. Beyond that, okay, you're fine. I did not know that this was your position but I agree with it 100%, and that has been also my position for many, many years. Uh, so I, I'm glad that it kavanti le moreno. I'm glad that my thoughts were in line with yours. Uh, Can I add and, one more small thing, Rabbi Beo? Please. One more small thing. So I think that is not even a controversial thing. The more controversial piece is, and I think that's when we started communicating more often, is the issue of gay marriage. And here is where I am dumbfounded. You know, I'm not a fan of Shmuley Beteach at all. There's nothing about Shmuley Beteach that I like. I don't know if you're familiar with Shmuley Beteach, uh, the ex-Chabad guy. Yes, There's nothing I'm... about him that I like. The one time he wrote something that I completely related to was after the Supreme Court passed the law of legalizing same-sex marriage, right? And there was this whole brouhaha, this whole balagan. And and, and, and Shmuley Beteach wrote the most fascinating piece in which he said, isn't this funny? Marriage throughout the United States is crumbling. People divorce. The divorce rate is 60 to 70 percent. Here is a segment of the population who's begging, please, let us get married. Let us get married. It's like they, they want to solidify their union. They want to kind of 
bring something to their union that will make them committed to each other, right? That make them, you know, like minimizes, you know, um, the, the good rate of, you know, being casual about sexuality. They want to kind of sanctify the relationship so that they're committed to one another. Why would anybody oppose to that? It's like, how amazing. So, you know, so the same thing when a gay couple comes to me and they say, Rabbi, could you help me get married? I'm thinking like, wow, you guys have matured. You're no longer, you know, finding new partners every another week on Tinder or whatever is the gay equivalent of that thereof. You want to really create a home that's devoted, that's dedicated, um, that has a sense of um, exclusivity. Why would I be opposed to that? You know, why wouldn't I do my utmost to try to find a way to make it work halachically, number one? Number two, if let's say we would have a pact among all of orthodoxy that we're not doing that, that would not diminish their um, homosexual life. They will still be homosexuals with the only difference that they will not have help in trying to create more of a union and more of a sense of exclusivity. So it baffles me when people are opposed to it baffles me would you perform a polygamous marriage no meaning a guy that wants to marry that it is married to one woman and wants to marry a second woman no so so i get this all the time i get this all the time right and you're nice you're making you're analogizing and i know you don't mean it only for the purpose of the argument you're analogizing um you know mar- a polygamous, ma- polygamous marriage people will say oh would you officiate on bestiality on a bestiality marriage well someone comes to you one day and says i would like to marry my dog would you officiate um that like i said before rabbi Bayo, all of those to one degree of the other cause hurt cause pain are not good for society. This is the only union that hurts nobody. In fact, I'm going to say something really controversial that's going to hurt me so much. I am far less patient for a congregant who comes to me with for help with an intermarriage than I am with uh, a congregant who comes to me for a gay marriage. Because Intermarriage, you know that a society is opposed to, and I know that a lot of beautiful non-Jewish women and very attractive. There's also beautiful Jewish women. It's not like the end of the world. It's not that if I refuse to do the wedding, and I'm not saying we can talk about what I do in the case of intervention and all of that. But if I refuse that wedding, you're not doomed for life. If I refuse a gay couple a wedding for life, they're doomed for ever being able be like you and me and everybody else and say, ah, we are married like everybody else. So that's the difference for me. I understand what uh, what you're saying, and I understand the, the pathos and, uh, and passion and, and motivation even of what you're saying. My question is, because you're so committed to halakha, how do you resolve it from a halachic perspective? Right, right. So um, I have written an actual response on that. I've written a tshuva on this, which I would be happy to share with you. Unfortunately, um, I've been told by many friends that if I publicize uh, the response, uh, uh, I will be, um, you know, um, 
completely excommunicated from the community, as will my family. And uh, at the end of the day, I have a family to feed. So uh, I am for now not publicizing it, but I've shared it with many, many, many friends, and I will share it with you um, soon after we put down after we finish this podcast. Um, but you'll tell me whether I made a compelling argument or not. Um, but I have to agree with you. Um, you know, the third piece of my my um, my um, philosophy on LGBTQ. I mean, in terms of A, I know what it. I I know a little bit of what it feels like. A B, I'm dedicated to keeping the 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 prohibition to a bare 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 minimum. C is that the theology of Halakha's attitude towards LGBTQ is so hard because at the end of the day, as an Orthodox Jew. There comes a place where I have to conclude God decreed something that in my experience as a human is hard and painful, and I'm not using this chaz v'shalom heretically, what feels cruel, you know? But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to conclude sometimes that, you know what? Yes, that's what God wants, and we don't understand God's wants and God's uh, plans and all of that. My point is, if I am not successful to prove that there is an argument to be made in favor of SSM, of same-sex marriage, then, of course, I would conclude that, you know what? Tough luck. What can we do? There are tough things in there. I attempted to make an argument that it is okay. Um, and like I said, you'll tell me whether I'm convinced you or not. And if you tell me no, we'll still be friends. I promise you, Rabbi. Yeah, yeah I promise you as well. <laughs> because another, another argument could be made is that just like throughout Jewish history, um, there have been, for various reasons, I'm just giving this as an example, uh, Jews that were only married halachically and they were not married civilly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that did not detract from them being married. So why couldn't it work the reverse? That a, a same-sex marriage could be approved, legalized according to the laws of the state, the laws of the country, but without the uh, kiddushin, meaning the uh, formal uh, uh, Jewish side marriage. That would not detract from their commitment. Right, right. So it's not an it's not a good analogy, and I'm exaggerating. Uh, but 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 here's what the response is, and 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 my experience for this comes from the fact that uh, in my past um, in my past um, experience as a rabbi, as Adrian mentioned, I'm, I was a rabbi in a shul in Brooklyn at Prospect Heights PHS. Brooklyn, as both of you know, are both of you in Phoenix? Adrian, are you also in Phoenix? I am. Yeah, so I don't know if you know about Brooklyn. I know about Brooklyn. Okay. I don't know about Orthodox Brooklyn, but I know about Brooklyn. <laughs> well, 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 you know, my grandfather used to have a Yiddish saying. I'll say it in Yiddish and translate it. And the Yiddish saying goes, which basically means is whatever happens with the non-Jews more or less trickles into the Jewish community and there's a lot of overlap. So whatever you know about non-Jewish Brooklyn, more or less, you know, something about Orthodox Brooklyn in the sense that Brooklyn is like, the, you know, today the Mecca of liberal liberalism and openness and inclusiveness. So the same is true for orthodoxy. So my shul, my, my synagogue in Brooklyn was very inclusive to the LGBTQ community, very open. And uh, we had a significant segment and it was a beautiful, beautiful experience. Um, uh, I know we have very limited time, but I would love to tell you fascinating stories about them. Uh, but that's where most of my my knowledge comes about this issue. And then I also have students who identify LGBTQ and friends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when 
Rabbi, when 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 Yeshivat Chavavei Torah decided um, not to give, um, um, not to ordain um, uh, a, a particular gay student, we're not a gay student of the yeshiva. We're not getting into the details right now. It's a complicated story. And the student was devastated. Devastated. You know, what do you mean you're not going to give him smicha? And then people went to him and said, oh, why don't you go to JTS? The Jewish Theological Cemetery, the conservative rabbinical school, they would give ordination to a uh, gay person. And the, first, the person, my student, lost his temper said, yeah, but I don't want to be conservative. I want to be orthodox. Like, like, I thank you. You're telling me, oh, stop being who you are, and then you'll be okay. But, I mean, you wouldn't tell an ex-person become conservative. You'll be horrified. Why should I be conservative? My point is, imagine a child, and I don't want to be melodramatic, who comes to you and says, uh, Daddy, am I Jewish like the rest of the Jews? And the answer would be, sure. I mean, of course, why not? And then he would say, or she would say, so, you know, um, Sister Hani had this beautiful wedding, and it was so nice. And we sang Odi Shama, and we had a chuppah, and we had a ring, and we broke a glass, and we invited the whole community. Uh, uh, when I get married, am I going to have that? I would like to. It's so fun and beautiful. And you say, you know, no, no, uh, your wedding is going to happen in City Hall. This is why. Um, because, you know, you're just marrying someone like you. How devastating is that? Because the kid doesn't know why. Why am I losing out? Now, I know we're exaggerating. and I don't know your age. I'm 53. My second wedding was 15 years ago. It, 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 over time, it's a big deal. So it's so fun to have a poofy dress and uh, who knows what. But when, when you're a young kid and you said, you know what? You're not getting any of that. If we can't, again, Rabbi Beyo, if it turns out that the argument is halacha does not let me do it, I will submit. I will um, capitulate. But if there is any, any chance that I can make a legitimate argument for that boy or girl, for that man or woman, that they are no different than anybody else, I will do all of that. And let me say one more thing, and I know I'm, I'm speaking to the converted. I, as an Orthodox rabbi, am so thrilled that today it's no longer a joke to say, you know, I'm gay and Orthodox. Five years ago, if someone would say this, that's so funny, <laughs> you're gay and Orthodox, that can't be. How is that possible? And thank God we've progressed enough that the LGBTQ community said, yes, we're going to stay. We're not going anywhere. We're here, we're queer, and we're Orthodox. And they've enriched my Torah. They've enriched my Judaism. They make me ask questions that I've never asked before, and I'm so indebted to them. Um, am I wrong in making an assumption, Rabbi Bayo, that you're Svaradi, that you identify Svaradi? 100%. Okay, so I'll tell you this cute little story quickly because I know you'll enjoy it. So like I mentioned, I have a big gay community in uh, my shul. There's a lesbian couple. Before Pesach, one of them calls me up, and they say, Rabbi, I have a question. And usually, if it's a gay couple, I assume it has to do something with uh, the gay life and so on and so forth. And she says, no, you know, Rabbi, I'm Sfaradi and my partner is Ashkenazi. What's the story at Rice this Pesach? <laughs> and it was fabulous. It was just amazing. It's like, when did I get a question about a couple that's not a man and a woman? And they want to know what to do about Rice. And right. in fact, in fact, I hope to publish a Chuva Safer towards the end of the summer. I got a grant. It made me look into the first 
principles about minhag and especially minhagim in families. And I understood minhag in a way that I would have never understood if it wasn't for that lesbian couple. So thank you. And I know I'm a kid when it comes to Torah. It's like that alone makes me feel I owe to them. I mean, I need to reciprocate. Robert Katz, I, I appreciate everything that you're saying. And, uh, you know, there's certain things that I agree with you more, other things I agree with you less, but it's definitely given me a, um, room to think and to grow for myself. And, and, and I am sure that we will continue at other times this conversation. I would like to step back and, and, and approach a different topic, a topic that has been, uh, that, that, that has been on my mind for a long time. I I have personal difficulties in defining myself as orthodox mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because because orthodox whether I like it or not means certain things to 99% of the world and I left my community because of theological reason the doxa of orthodoxy Mm-hmm. Not the practice, but the doxa. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are dealing with a lot of issues also in my own family with uh, Orthodox feminism, with, uh, uh, you know, um, approaches and, 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 and acceptance of LGBT community and et cetera, et cetera. And to, and to broaden the, uh, normative orthodox understanding of halakha to various ways, uh, always within being honest with our halakhic understanding. That's why I cannot honestly say that I'm orthodox because I am not in my doxa anymore where, where I used to be. Please explain to me if you consider yourself an orthodox Rabbi, whether you have ever thought about this, this approach, this question, this dilemma that I have. <laughs> um, you know, if I wouldn't have known, have known otherwise, I would have thought maybe we're twins. Um, of course, of course, I struggle with that a lot. Um, I struggle with it nonstop, and I think I struggle with that in two ways because I like the fact that you. Uh, threw in the theological angle into the mix, because I think the theology is primarily the piece uh, where it manifests itself most. And I'll say, I'll say kind of, you know, a negative and a, and a neutral. It recently dawned on me that, um, let's speak Rav Herschel Schechter, right? Rav Herschel Schechter is kind of, you know, the spokesperson for mainstream orthodoxy who has, you know, come out very publicly against a lot of the more liberal um, aspects of orthodoxy, liberal orthodoxy, and so on and so forth. So one of the, one of the places that, 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 that he and I disagree with very strongly is women's aliyot. Can a woman get an aliyah or not, right? Uh, can she could be called to the Torah? And I wrote, again, a response in which I argued that a woman can be called to the Torah. He is vehemently opposed. He is vehemently opposed. It recently dawned on me that there's also a theological piece to this debate in the sense that Rav Herschel Schechter, and this is something positive about Rav Schechter, Rav Herschel Schechter believes that if indeed a woman is not allowed to get an aliyah and she gets one, 
that's like terrible. That like would be such a big sin. That would be such a big transgression. And that's why he's so anxious to get it right. Because if he gets it wrong, it will be so consequential. I don't share that theological fear. You know, I argue within the halachic system why a woman can get an aliyah. But at the same time, I don't think that if it turns out that I was wrong and I called a woman to the Torah when I was not supposed to, that God will be that angry. You know, so I think that's part a part that I've not made sufficiently public in my discourse. I need to be open that people should know. By the way, another difference between us is I don't think it's so consequential. So that's kind of the neutral piece. The other piece is that the denominational affiliation has been such a uh, such a burden on our conversations um, that it takes up so much energy and so much mental space. And I don't know what to do with it. I mean, am I orthodox? I think I am orthodox according to my definition. Am I orthodox according to the definition of my siblings, my brothers, sisters, my father, mother, et cetera, et cetera, my whole family? Um, I don't think so. But quite frankly, Rabbi Bayo, even if I am orthodox, I don't care about my orthodoxy so much. It's not where I get my religious inspiration. You know, orthodox for me, ortho, my orthodox identity is really my background noise. It's like, you know, maybe, you know, when I built the house, so to speak, of my identity, the first layer of bricks was orthodoxy. It tells me how to live halachically, and that allows me to be the person that I am. But it's not a central piece of my day-to-day thinking. In other words, orthodoxy to me is a means, not an end. Now, here's the thing, though, is that um, I recently wrote up an essay, and I thought I made it very clear that, of course, you know, like you said, Ortho or behaviorally, of course I'm orthodox. I keep orthodox halakha. I uh, follow halakha the way it was meant to be understood all, the, all, all these years. But in terms of my identity, that's not who I am. It's not who I identify. Like I said earlier, Hasidut is a much bigger source of spiritual guidance for me and so on and so forth. And I'm sure you have that too, Rabbi Bayo. I've showed it for five to six friends, and all of them said, oh, so you're not orthodox. I said, no, 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 read the essay. That's not what I said. And then I can't publish it because people are just going to hear what they want. And unfortunately, people obsess with denominational identity. So No, I I agree with you. The the, the way that I try to resolve, again, when I have to give the two-minute speech on the elevator, I say I'm not an orthodox. Right. But but I I found my way out is – I'm a Sephardi rabbi. <laughs> Lucky you in so many ways. Right. Something that you can't say. I mean, I am so jealous. I mean, we do accept converts, so you're welcome <laughs> no, to you join don't. us. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> but, 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 but what I'm saying is that by, by, by defining myself differently, not in the, in the Ashkenazi uh um, a milieu of uh, orthodox, modern orthodox framework, right, which is the Ashkenazi framework. I say, you know what? Let me regain back my Sephardiness and I'm going to re- <laughs> reestablish myself, not according to the definition that others want to put on me, but my own traditional definition. I'm a Sephardi Jew, which makes me much happier and, and, and avoids constant internal struggles within myself on uh, who am I and who I'm not. And, and what I find fascinating, and I am sure that you have encountered this over and over again, 
that in the Sephardi tradition, as we find it in the various Teshuvot throughout the, the times, including Ravovalia Yosef, much more lenient, much easier to approach uh, modernity and the community that is so uh, uh, multicolored from a Sephardi perspective. See, it's 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 got. I mean, you're 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 kind of causing me so much pain that I can't even begin to tell you. Um, <laughs> you know, first of all, like I said, lucky you. I wish I had an easy alternative that doesn't have a that doesn't need so much explanation and b still keeps you within the fold, right? Because when someone says I'm a Sephardi rabbi, I say, okay, fine, okay, that's that's just different, but you're still inside, you're still part of it. You know, when I try to explain what it means to be modern Hasidish, well, you can't be modern and Hasidish, and what does that mean? Halavai, halavai. Exactly, exactly. That's what people think. Halavai, right. I could, I could have that easy um, um, alternative. But more importantly, what you said is so true and so important. But here's the challenge. So I'm sure you know Tzvi Zohar, Professor yeah. Tzvi Zohar. So Professor yeah. Tzvi Zohar is an expert on Sephardi Psika. And I, he and I are very, very close friends. Uh, they, his family hosted us when we were in Israel. And I've talked to him extensively because here's my problem, Rabbi Beo. Most people are superficial, and most people will tell you, you know, Sephardi Puskin were more lax, they were more easygoing, they were more forgiving. I don't think so. I think oh, no, there's I, a deep. I know I'm. I'm telling. I know I'm converting. I'm, I know I'm preaching to the converted, but it's unfortunate because most people don't get that. Sephardi poskim have a sophisticated, very elaborate theology that explains why the end product is more inclusive. Right? It's not a right. laxity. It's not a lack of passion. And here's the thing. I would love to figure out the tools, how to replicate it so that I don't have to be Sephardi to do that. But and I really mean that, right? There's a methodology there. What is that methodology that explains how they ended up in such a different place than these Ashkenazi postkin? Well, we know. I think that I understand historically why it developed in one way and not the other, because Ashkenazi world had to confront itself with emancipation, modernity, reform, Judaism, secularism, all of these uh, um, perceived and actual attacks that uh, Sephardi Judaism did not have to deal with and on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, Mark Shapiro, you know, Dr. Mark Shapiro, Dr. Shapiro throws in one more thing. Sure. Mark Shapiro says in Ashkenazi communities, there was always an Orthodox shul, a reform shul, and a conservative shul. So if someone was a troublemaker, the rabbi would say to him, why don't you go across the street? There's a reform shul. You'll be perfectly happy there or the conservative shul. In the Sephardi community, there was not an option. Right. The troublemakers had to stay in there. No, but my point is, Rabbi, rabbi Bayo, that if I want to replicate what they did, in addition to knowing the why, which he so ap- aptly explained, there's also a how. Meaning, I don't believe they kind of said, oh, look, we have this kind of Jews in my shul. You know what? I'll be more lenient. No, 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 no. They had a methodology that explains what are the building blocks that allows a rabbi to conclude X rather than Y. That piece I've not yet learned, and I would love I, to I learn. Think, I think that part of it is Koch de Terra. 
but that's part of it. Meaning the the strength of leniency. Mm-hmm. Meaning there are two approaches, and 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 it and it does connect in a way with what you were mentioning earlier, whether God will be upset or not with two men marrying or not. Meaning, okay. yep. ultimately, God doesn't get upset. Absolutely not. We have learned these from Maimonides. We've learned these exactly. from Moreno, Moreno Arambam. God doesn't get upset. <laughs> Let's start there. God doesn't get upset. Right. right. So it's in, the question is not as Rav Schechter were to hold that we're going, Hashem is going to get upset. No, Hashem doesn't get upset. It's not what Hashem does or what Hashem feels is what I do in my Avodat Boreh. Right. It is what I do in my service towards God. Right. Um, right. And, and, and the strength of leniency, which is an approach that Sephardi rabbis have had for a long time, uh, I think is also part of the puzzle. And in the Ashkenazi world, for various reasons that you know better than me, it, the direction is the opposite, is the strengths of Humrah. Uh, the more stringent you are, uh, the more of a rabbi you are, the better you are. Right, right, right. And, and that is something that um, that is that makes it so much more difficult for people to embrace orthodoxy or to make people leave orthodoxy. As we started this podcast conversation, you know, we mentioned so many. Orthodox Jews leave Orthodoxy. And unfortunately, I believe part of it is because they're only showing, they're only shown what is pasnished, what you're mm-hmm. not allowed to do, mm-hmm. rather than show them how you are allowed to do everything. Mm-hmm. It is all in moderation, in a proper time, in a proper place, with the proper people. Yep. Yep. I couldn't agree with him more. I couldn't agree with him more. I have a question from the sidelines here, which is many of the issues that you two are discussing and many of the topics that we have gotten into with previous guests on this podcast have been uh, substantive by nature. And what I mean by that is they're the kind of issues and the approaches that you bring are serious and they rely on deep learning scholarship. Uh, participation in traditions of knowledge and learning, etc. One of the frustrations that I know Rabbi Bale has had, and we've talked about this, is so many of the times you're trying to discuss these things with the broader world, you're dealing with people whose understanding, as uh, Rabbi Katz said here, is very superficial mm-hmm. and is very casual. Uh, not people who are committed to scholarship. I find this for myself in the same way, whether it's dealing with topics that I'm an expert in or topics I'm passionate about. I'm often engaging with people that haven't gotten the foundation, let alone the depth. They don't, you know, it's superficial. As we wrap up this conversation, I'd love to hear from, from both of you. How do you see the future of Jewish communities where the tradition of scholarship, whether it's, you know, in in Torah studies or it's adult education at the JCC or it's early childhood, you know, all of the different ways in which 
Jewishness is experienced, engaged with, etc. How do you see bringing others along to the point where they can have the kind of conversation you're having today with at least the the level of kind of the, what, what is the word we used to use um, in higher education? You know, the prerequisite level, right? Like they've done the 101 already, and now it's time to have the real conversation, the graduate seminar, if you will, uh, in a secular context. How, how would you bring folks into this conversation who say, you know what, I only have that inherited, superficial kind of person on the street point of view. How do I get to where you are? Uh, allow me to, to have a stab at this because I'm more interested to hear what Robert Katz will say later. Um, I think that it is a very good point and, and it's a difficult one. I think that the access to knowledge, academic knowledge, scholarly work, rabbinic knowledge, rabbinic scholarly work is so available today compared to last generation that people that have any interest can start to learn a lot, even on their own. The gates of knowledge are wide open and people are learning. People that a generation ago would not even be accepted to learn today are not only accepted, but are becoming scholars on of their own, are becoming rabbis. So that is wonderful. That is wonderful. The challenge, I think, is not the uh, access to knowledge, but um, if people are going to are going to want to uh, take the time to dwell in uh, knowledge that has been written thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, rather than only focus of what is the immediate reward of a fad that comes today. Um, and that I think the responsibility is uh, is mine and Rabbi Katz's that each one of us within our communities and so many other educators and rabbis and community people, we need to, to inspire people to find a path into Jewish learning that is so wonderful and it's so addictive once you get a taste of it. But I would love to hear what Robert Katz has to say. As if I have anything to add after you said everything. <laughs> no, 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 really. I mean, I think I'll, I'll, I'll just piggyback on what you said and just elaborate for a minute or two. Is that I think that the last piece is the most important piece. Um, and um, I don't know about your experience, but my experience as a rabbi, along with my colleagues, is always that, you know, we try to design the most creative classes, the most interesting classes, and then we get together and we kvetch that, oh, so few people showed up. And what I tell my friends always is, we need to take responsibility. If we were to make it exciting enough in a way that resonates with our audience, you bet they would have showed up. If we can convince them that it's as, fun, it's as much fun as, um, I don't know, whatever fad um, is now on TV, because I don't get around to watch that much, right? 
then they would say, yeah, it's worth an evening of my time. Um, so we need to think better. Yeah, obviously, it's much more complicated. People are overwhelmed. People are mostly two-family, two-parent jobs and uh, paying bills and all that. It's hard. But if we can make them feel um, that that it's important um, enough for themselves, then they will participate. Um, and, and the only thing I think in terms of your question, Adrian, is the big tension that I have um, all the time. For example, I mentioned before that I'm going to I'm hoping to publish at the end of the summer a responsa volume. Um, do I do it in Hebrew or in English, right? Do I write it in Hebrew so the, the lingua franca of the elite, right, the lingua franca of the scholars, uh, or do I write it in English so it becomes more accessible to the broad masses? And there is a big argument about where change happens, right? Does change happen top-down or bottom-up, Right. Does it happen that the rabbis guide the change, the rabbis set the tone and the people follow? Or no, the congregants come to the rabbis and say, Rabbi, we're living in a new world and either you join or you'll stay behind. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, it's its attention and like everything else, the answer is both, right? You have to A, convince the elite, which is what I'm trying to do with my responsa. And people listen to the rabbis if they know that they're safe. I think the important piece is they need to be safe. And what, my, what I mean by being safe is spiritually and emotionally and all of that. Um, I, I, I've, I've seen this time and again, the resistance to its LGBTQ inclusion, of course, partially philosophical, partially theological, but there's also a non-judgmental homophobia. What I mean by that is that it's not like that they, they hate gays or they hate people who identify as LGBTQ. It's just very foreign to them, right? It seems to undermine everything they know about masculinity and femininity. And they rightfully are nervous and say, you know what, what else are you going to undermine? What else are you going to challenge? And we as rabbis fail in convincing them that, no, 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 we're not here to break norms. We're not here to undermine your Jewish home. It will actually make your home more religious, more spiritual, more devout. And so far, at least for myself, I'm giving myself a generous C minus because that's the part where I failed in convincing people that I'm not out to break the Torah. I'm not out to pull the rug under the Torah. In fact, it will be a better experience of Judaism. And I think the best argument, and with that I'll finish, is the youth. Because the youth has kind of made such headway on these issues, and they're either going to drop out or stay if we can make it an inclusive place. Rabbi Yisus Harakatz is chair of the Talmud department at Yeshivat Hoveve Torah Rabbinical School in New York. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Rabbi Katz, thank you very much. We appreciate all that you have taught us today. Thank you so much, Rabbi Bayo. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful opportunity. No, it's, uh, I have to say that this uh, is a, a, a podcast that I was eagerly looking forward. Um, <laughs> it allowed me to express certain thoughts that I knew and to hear certain ideas and thoughts that I knew I could only have them with somebody with your knowledge and your background. And I hope that we will continue this, whether within the format of the podcast or offline, uh, phys physically offline or virtually offline. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that, we, that we shall continue this. And uh, I look forward to learning with you. Likewise. Thank you very, very much. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to Conversation with the Rabbi on your favorite podcast app. 
You can also find the latest episodes online at conversationwiththerabbi.com. For all of us here at phx.fm, I'm Adrian McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and please join us for the next Conversation with the Rabbi.